today we're going to talk in Yimei Chabad. Actually, we're going ahead and we'll talk about Hey Tevis. Hey Tevis has several uh, several uh, entries on the fifth day of Tevis, but of course the uh, most uh, relevant and the last one that is important to us is called the festival of Didan Notzach, in which we were victorious. The festival of the festival of the books that they were finally uh, the court ruled, and we'll talk about it. But we go in the events, the way they took place. So we'll go in the history and the days as it took place. So the first one we're talking about the fifth day of Tevis in the year. Tafrej Ayin Zayin, that's uh, 5,676 actually, Tafrej Ayin Vov in 76. That was the passing of Rav as we um, as we spoke about. He was the son of the Rebbe Tzumanucha Rachel, who was the daughter of the Mittler Rebbe. Okay, so this is December 30th. In 1916, yeah. So the Mordechai Duber uh, was with his mother. They lived. They went up to Israel, as we studied yesterday or the day before, that they went up to Israel um, together with her husband, Rabbi Yaakov Chuli Slonim. We learned about him, and he uh, had a son. His name was Mordechai Duber. He was actually born in Lubavitch. In the year Tofrej, about in 1839 or 1840, right. he was five years old when he went up to Hebron, when his parents made Aliyah, and he went up to Hebron. And he was one of the leaders of Kolel Chabad in Israel. Kolel Chabad, that's the charity, uh, umbrella organization which supported uh, various endeavors of Chabad, especially in Israel. Uh, today, we also have a Kodal Chabad, which is a very successful organization, which does a lot of good, helps people that are poor, it helps um, people that are studying Torah, it's various different uh, levels of support that it provides to uh, these um, to, to people, and uh, he was uh, very uh, devoted to the Rebbe's that he traveled many times to the city of Lubavitch from Hebron to be by the Rebbe. And the previous Rebbe writes about it in his uh, Sichas. Now, the first time there is the Rebbe writes, or the, it's related about his first um, trip that he took to Lubavitch, he was already 40 years old. Um, that means that he was already, he left, he was 35 years in Israel. So for the first time he was 40 years old when he traveled to Lubavitch. And he went to the Rebbe Maharash. The Rebbe Maharash, I mean his mother was the same generation as the Tzemach Tzedek. His mother. That's his first cousin. Because the Tzemach Tzedek Tzemach Tzedek's, uh, first of all, the Tzemach Tzedek's wife was a sister to Menucha Rochel. Uh, Menucha Rochel was a daughter of the Mittler Rebbe, and the Tzemach Tzedek's wife, Chayamushka, was also a daughter of the Mittler Rebbe. Uh, was the but she married, Chayamushka married the Tzemach Tzedek, whose son was the Rebbe Maharash, 
and she, Menucha Rachel, married Rabbi Yaakov Chuli Shlonim, who had a son, Rabbi Mordechai Ber, who, who, had, who had a son, Mordechai Ber, who was the Rebbe Marash's first cousin. He was the Rebbe Marash's first cousin. And he traveled to the Rebbe Maharash. And when he came to Lubavitch for the very first time, for him, he was a kid of five years old, he didn't probably know his ins and outs over there. It was the middle of the night, and he had nowhere to go. So where was he going to go in the middle of the night? So he asked the wagon driver that he should take him to the Rebbe's home. Take him to the house of the Rebbe. Um, he was sure that the Rebbe doesn't sleep uh, at this time of the night. He's probably going to be up. So when he came to the Rebbe's home, he banged very loudly. And the Rebbe Maharash opened the door. Oi, he says to him, Shalom Aleichem Remot now, the Rebbe says, so the Mordechai was surprised. How does the Rebbe recognize him? But the Rebbe saw him the last time, was 35 years ago, when he was 5 years old. And it was 40 years that passed by. And the Rebbe Marash uh, recognized him right away. So, the Rebbe Marash says, who else can go ahead and bang in my door <laughs> 2 o'clock in the morning if not Rebbe Motaber um, it's very interesting that the Rebbe Rashab who is the son of the Rebbe Maharash refers to him as my son-in-law he used to call Rebbe notwithstanding the fact that Rebbe was uh, much older than him because he was the same age as the Rebbe Marash or he was uh, uh, even older than the Rebbe Marash perhaps I'm not sure exactly because the Rebbe Marash was the seventh son of the Tzemach Tzedek and he was uh, the Rebbe was earlier I'm not sure exactly who was older but he was definitely much older than the Rebbe Rashab and the Rebbe Rashab called him my son-in-law why did he call him his son-in-law? because it says like this that one time the Rebbe Marash was looking for his son and he found that he was sitting next to this Ramot Cheber who used to come to Lubavitch and Ramot Cheber heard from his mother Menucha Rochel all the stories about the Mitla Rebbe and about the Alter Rebbe because that was her grandparents so he knew a lot of history and he knew a lot of family history a lot of stories and the uh, Rebbe Rashab Love to hear the stories. So he would sit for hours and hours with Ramot Cheber listening to family history and the family stories. And when the Rebbe Marash went looking for him, he was busy listening to Ramot Cheber's stories about uh, his, uh, his family. So the Rebbe Marash sort of said to his son, Did you take yourself? A son-in-law on Kest, you know, in the olden days used to be a tradition that a father-in-law who can afford it would take a son-in-law. They used to call it Kest, used to call it. Kest, Kest. I don't know, I'm not sure exactly why. It would be interesting to look up the, 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 the source of the word Kest, why does it come? But Kest means, basically means that an Edom means a son-in-law in Yiddish. He said it was Gnuman an Edom of Kest, meaning you took a son-in-law as to support, which means... He's a whole, I ate my cast is free, 
and he owes the he owes his father-in-law everything, so he has to give him. His father-in-law supports him, so he has to spend time with his with his supporter. Right. So the fact that the he was taking up all the Mordechai's time, he was sitting and listening to the stories. He said, "What is it, your son-in-law, that you oh. took him on guest? That you're sitting and you're 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 done." So the name he called him a son-in-law. So once the Rebbe said son-in-law on him, he called him Adam. He used to call him an Adam. So the Mordechai became his Adam, and. Um, it says that um, his son, he had a son who we called Shneir Zaman, uh, Shneir Zaman Slonim, that was the son of Motcheber. He used to call him my grandson, the Rebbe Rashab, because if he's a son of law. <laughs> so his son becomes his grandson. Is this a common practice for them to support son in laws? I mean, today it's not a big common practice. Uh, in some communities, it's somewhat, yes. It is someone. It's still in some communities. Unfortunately, with the downturn, with the economic downturn, just the cost of living today has become uh, very, very difficult. And I know that there was a lot of, in some, in some, in some quarters, you know, the the idea of a of a student studying and for many years after the marriage um, still uh, still exists today. And that's why we have all the kolels and the different. That's the name, real name of kolel is is a reference to the places where they sit and study mm-hmm. beyond. Uh, the yeshiva, which means people Avrechem wants to get married, and they still continue their studies in the in these places of study, in the kollels, and many of them, if they were outstanding students, and the father-in-law was looking for a scholar for his son-in-law, so he would pay for it, and part of the payment was um, that he would support them. Now, a lot of times the wives work, and you know people have various ideals, you know, and you, know, you can't tell people what's important, you know, in life. Now, in the Chabad, generally, not there is exceptions to every rule, but in generally, the idea is that you study during your uh, years in the yeshiva, uh, and then when you get married, you stay maybe for a year or two, and then you go out and you contribute something to the world from all of the, your studies, but it's not... Uh, uh, we don't dedicate just sit and study the whole rest of your life, but we also need the Jewish people need great scholars. They need people to study all the time, yeah. also. So you have you have that also in general Chabad. We don't do that most most of the time. Most people, perhaps if there's an outstanding scholar and an outstanding, sometimes maybe somebody deserving. I mean, in Israel they're having problems now with that because it became sort of uh, everyone is doing it. Uh, some people are not really, not everybody is really studying. Some people are just, uh, you know, uh, using that as an excuse not to go to work or to, to laze around, to drink, to get handouts or other things. Yeah. But, you know, but, you know, we have to judge everybody fairly. But there is a, there is a mount mindset. Certain women, when they get married, they want their husband to be a scholar. And they're ready to go to work and they're ready to live a modest life and they're ready to... And they don't need much, and they don't want much. You know, at least that's what they think before they get married. I think sometimes <laughs> they change their mind. So they, the world. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you know they're very idealistic. You know, uh, and then later on, but still, there is that's very, very noble for some people. But I mean, most commonly, people want a good life and uh, yeah, financial security, hard. and they want their. But in, in 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 many circles, and actually in the Haredi circles. It is common practice to, you know, get a son-in-law who is an outstanding scholar, and the in-laws, if they're well-to-do, 
uh, will support them. And now with the crash and the financial downturn, a lot of them got into big trouble because they um, they promised uh, to support and they couldn't no longer do it. They couldn't do it. It was a problem. But in any event, yeah, all right. Yeah, well, doesn't always happen. Okay, so that's one thing of uh, hey Tavis. Now the another thing, the next thing in the order is actually the fifth of Tavis in Tuf Shin, uh, which is in the nineteen uh, forty, uh, right in the onset of the war, uh, the war, and the Rebbe uh, actually escaped to uh, to to Riga to Latvia from Poland. Um, during the Second World War, he escaped. Uh, he escaped uh, Poland, uh, Warsaw. Did he go to Warsaw to Berlin and then to Riga? Yes, absolutely. He went to Warsaw to Berlin, and he actually reached uh, Latvia. He actually reached uh, that day. Um, I think we talked about that yesterday. Right? Yeah. 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 Now, the uh, previous Rebbe writes in a letter describing the situation of the Jewish people what's going on in Poland a little bit and you see from the Rebbe's letter that he really had no idea yet, the world had no idea yet or maybe it hasn't started yet at that time they hadn't started the systematic extermination of the Jewish people immediately, when did it start? Actually I was watching something last night the, the concentration camps were uh, in the 1934-1935, right? Because this weekend celebrates Kristallnacht. Yeah, but 19. Right? So when was that? So, but Kristallnacht was in 1933. Yeah. But they, but the, they actually start moving Jews and people out in Germany in the middle 30s. They were starting to round them up. But the mass, the mass slaughter started when they entered Poland. Okay, so here, this is what we're reading now, but you see from the Rebbe's letter, I'm going to read a little bit of the Rebbe's letter now, okay. you can see that the, um, the full devastation, the full savagery of all the, what was transpiring wasn't yet at that point, because even though the Rebbe, this is what the Rebbe writes, um, and the Rebbe writes, this is dated on the fifth day of Tavis that he came to, to Riga in Tavshin in, uh, in, in 1940. And he writes a letter, a public letter to the Jewish people all over. He writes a letter. He says, I came today, thank God, from Warsaw. And he says, I'm hereby going to fulfill the request of many of our brothers and sisters who live in Poland to extend to you greetings from them and also a request to our brothers and sisters in all the diaspora all over the the Jewish world. He says it's indescribable what is going and what is happening to our brethren during these war in the uh, in, 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 in Poland in general, especially in the days of the siege of Warsaw. Uh, it's something which is beyond words. Um, many were killed from bullets, Many were burned alive. Most, many homes became the graves when their whole houses fell, destroyed right on top of them. And the people did not get a chance to run away. Many were wounded, devastated wounds, lo- losing, losing, uh, becoming uh, handicapped for the rest of their lives. Blind, deaf, uh, hands cut down, uh, legs cut, 
emotionally, people got sick, terribly emotionally, and um, elders, youngers, women, children, everybody, it's just indescribable. The financial situation of the Jewish people is terrible. It's terrible, the, 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 how poor and how destitute they are. It's Even before the war, they were uh, destitute. But now, because of the war, all sources of livelihood, of earning money, have sort of closed down. And most of the merchants and even the wealthy people amongst the Jewish people became totally poor without any any funds hunger and uh, and, and, and the destitute is everywhere my hope is the Rebbe says that all Jewish men and women amongst the Jewish people the people of the God of Abraham will realize the situation and people will separate and give tzedakah, give money to support our brothers and sisters who have been totally oppressed in Poland. May Hashem have mercy on them. So from this letter, you actually see that they did not yet... That letter was circulated in Washington. What? Washington. That letter. But based on intelligence, they figured, and there was no CIA back then, is that the Germans were such a civil people that they could never do things that they would, said they were doing, what people said were happening. But in this case, for what he was saying, yeah, but over here what they're talking about is before the roundup and the systematic extermination of the Jewish people, they're talking about just the bombardment when the Germans were bombarding and putting in siege. That was a a side effect of the war. That was uh, because... It was only 30 days, so it took over the whole country. Yep. Just walked in. Which 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 day was it that they actually took over the country? That that the fifth of Tabers was December seventeen in nineteen thirty nine. That was the letter was, and that was, and this was already what September first. So September was already overrun at that time. September first, yeah. Because a few days before in December, this was the fifth of Tabers, but on the second of Tabers, that was three days before. Base Gimel, Dalit, Hey. Four days earlier, they had taken them out of Warsaw and brought them to Berlin. Yeah. September 1st, 1939, and it took them one month and five days to take over the country. So September and October. October, October, October the 6th, 1939, it was, it was all over. Okay. So then they start rounding up. Okay, so but apparently, so this was right then, the October roundup. and December, and the Rebbe, that's exactly when the Rebbe escaped, huh. and that's exactly, huh. yeah, wow. Just to sum this up, it seems like that it was uh, right in the, right then and there, well, yeah, right then and there when they were starting to round up the Jewish people, well, and, uh, but in the, Rebbe's, in the Rebbe's letter, you don't see that yet over there. Okay. They didn't know that wasn't yet known to them. Over there, he's just talking about the general devastation of the war and of their situation. Now, to a little bit happier news, um, and to the main, and finally, that's, we're talking about the fifth day of Tavis of Tavshin Mem Zayim. Um, talking about the 5th of Tavis, so that's January 6th, 1987. Now, that was the day, as we've already mentioned several times, in which the judge and the courts uh, ruled, the judge ruled that the books belonged to 
Agudas Chassidei Chabad. It belongs to the Chabad organization. It's not a private collection, and he ordered that all the books that were taken should be returned. Now, here's a little bit of uh, history, what took place. The, um, the trial began a year before, in 19... The year before it was 1886. It was 1986. It was in, in Yutes Kislev, on the 19th day of Kislev in Tafshim and Vav. That is when it started in, for, in front of a judge called Charles Simpton. He was the judge in the case. The trial took three weeks. After the three weeks, the trial itself, there was a period that they would, they brought all documents, supporting documents. That ended on the day of the 10th of Shvat. These are all very special days. One is Yutas Kislev. You see, the date that it started is the 19th day of Kislev, which is a holiday that the Alter, the Alter Rebbe, the Shnei Zama, was free from prison. The uh, end of this document, the, the end of the, the period of bringing the documents, was the 10th of Shvat, which was the day of the Yortzeit of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. On the fifth day, on the fifth day, and of Tavshim uh, Zayin on Hey Tavis, the fifth day of Tavis Tavshim Zayin, the judge announced his decision, his decision. Is this in federal court? Yes, I believe so. Well, and he he announced the judge. The ruling is, and the ruling took up forty pages of his ruling. The judge accepted the argument of Agudas Hasidic Chabad, which is the umbrella organization representing Chabad, that the entire life of the previous Rebbe were dedicated and devoted for the community. And he ruled in his, uh, in his ruling that the library is a public library and it belongs to Agudas Hasidic Chabad, Ha'ilamis, to the general umbrella organization of Chabad, and the person is guilty, has to immediately return all the books and all the objects which he has taken without permission. He has the, to bring it back. The, we're suing who now on this? His grand, this the was nephew, the, was the nephew. Okay, Gurari. The nephew. Gurari. Gurari. Okay. Barry Gurari. Was that his father? The one we saw at the cemetery? Yes. Yes, okay. the Rashak, that's his father, Rosh Mario Gorari. Next to, next to the old. That's right, okay. that's right. Now, this is what the uh, conclusion that the judge writes in his, in his letter, in his ruling. He says, after listening to the testimony in this case, and after looking into the documentation, the many proofs and the evidence that was presented by both sides, I've come to the conclusion that this library was not a personal asset of the Rebbe Friedrich Rebbe Yisroch Schneerson at the time of his passing. And that's in, in such, so the uh, other arguments is null against it because there is no uh, question that outside of an inheritance, the other side has no claims to the books. Their own claim is that they get it as inheritance. So Agudas Hasidic Chabad, which is the umbrella organization, has the uh, full uh, victory and they have the full rights 
to demand that all the property that was taken should be brought back. Now, this was uh, something that the Rebbe took very to heart. And the Rebbe was very, very upset about it. So it wasn't just about fighting for a library, but for the Hasidim and for the Rebbe was the Rebbe's, mm-hmm. the Rebbe's honor and the Rebbe's uh, wishes and the Rebbe's... And besides the spiritual uh, you know, meaning of it, of all these uh, heritage and uh, the, for many generations, so the news of the victory... Uh, spread out very, very quickly throughout the world and everywhere that they heard about this, the victory, it became a major day of joy and happiness for all the Hasidim. Many thousands went out into the streets and they were singing and dancing all day. But the main place of the joy was actually in 770 in Beis Chayenu where thousands gathered and they celebrated the great victory. The uh, climax of the joy was when the Rebbe, after Mincha, in the Daven Mincha, the big shul, usually didn't always Daven during the regular, on the holidays he would Daven in the big shul, but otherwise he would Daven upstairs, but when there was a big crowd, he would go downstairs, 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 versus the upstairs shul. Oh, there's one upstairs too? Yeah, I showed you through the room over there, the upstairs, the upstairs 770. Not... The first floor, the main floor. You know, we saw the Rebbe's room. Yeah. So there is a shul over there, and the uh, the davening. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, that we're little thing yeah. there. Oh, oh, oh. So he used to go in there. And the weekdays, when it was quiet during Mincha Mari, oh. we daven over there. Oh, okay. Also, for when there was Torah reading. Now, so, so what happened was he went down to the big shul, and they davened uh, the Mincha with a uh, festive tunes, the tunes of the holidays and after the davening, the Rebbe started to give a special talk and the Rebbe, amongst other things, the Rebbe said that at the time of the incarceration and the freedom of the Alta Rebbe uh, still the one who was rejoicing in the redemption, he learned from everything that took place an instruction in the service of God he didn't just take this as a just as a victory, but it meant, and it had a, a, a message, it had a lesson for what to take out in God's service. And one of the lessons that he took was that he needs to add with more force, spreading the wellsprings, this is the teaching of Hasidus to the outside, to the public. So taking that into consideration, it is very clear what is the instruction, the internal inst- godly instruction to what do we need to take from what happened over here, the freedom and the victory, that it's specifically one of the arguments and one of the complaints was from the other side is that Agudas Chabad isn't a functioning, a viable organization that is doing, that is really active, uh, that means, these arguments tell us that we should now learn to strengthen even more spreading out the teachings of, the teachings of, our, teach, of our Rebbe's and to learn it publicly and individually with great joy and with great excitement with joy that would break through all the boundaries. This joy continued also the following days. For seven days, 
the Rebbe would say each day a special talk he would give following that. And those days are sort of called like the Shivas Yimei Hamishta, just like by a wedding. After the wedding, you have seven days of celebration. There was like the seven days of celebration of the return and the victory of the book. So the day of 5th of Tevis has been set for a day of a festival called the Dan Notzach, which is the words of the Medrash, ours war was victorious. That we were victory that to able to regain the ownership of the book, which is the victory of the light over darkness, people trying to take away, and this is the victory of the light over darkness. And as we already learned, that later on this was already, this was challenged, the verdict was challenged in court, and then it was confirmed again, but then they didn't make already a whole, they so kept they it quiet. The yeah, but they, they, the other people appealed. They didn't, they didn't, well, the other side appealed this ruling, and they lost in the appeal again. But the second time when they lost in the appeal uh, and the books actually came back and oh, everything right. was brought in, um, the Rebbe said not to, uh, not to make... Uh, anymore. Uh, no, and not to make a lot of noise about it and just to... Just, and the Rebbe was kind of, uh, well, uh, kind of actually upset when the people were wasting time from study and, and doing things. And, and, and the Rebbe said, you know, that's enough. And the celebration remained mainly on the fifth day of Tavis. Yeah? So, so what I'm saying is, initially, they went to the religious court and they couldn't... And that was they the never, this never went to the religious court because oh, people would not abide by the religious court. Cases that are not... Uh, that are not... Uh, uh, able to be edu- properly adjudicated by the uh, adjudicated by the uh, rabbinical court, go to the. Uh, so they go right to civil court. Yeah, uh, in order to go to a based in, you know, both parties have to agree, agree and want to accept oh. the based in, and that's you know was kind of hard. You no, know, our based in, unfortunately, doesn't have that much teeth. Uh, you know, they can't enforce and they can't. Uh, no, I know that. And um, it's hard to find a, a based in to. Undertake a case like that, so this wouldn't an be embarrassment to go to civil court to deal with a religious issue. It's not only an embarrassment; it's it's against halacha in cases. But uh, when when we have to save uh, justice is very very important in the Torah. To do justice and to do what's right is very very important. If you have to do justice, which means if somebody's trying to steal something from you and take away from you, it's very important and it's halachically uh, sound to go ahead and protect the one who is being robbed from someone. You know, there's a lot of times there's various different manipulation and tactics and delay tactics of not to bring about fear and what's right. And, uh, and therefore, in these cases, to help bring back property from uh, what is rightfully um, once it's not only uh, allowed, it's a mitzvah to go to court to get it back to them. Now the question is who says that you're right? You know, That's only by assuming that they're right. I mean, I think in this case you had an individual versus a whole organization and it's really uh, anyone with a uh, little bit of cycle uh, and sensitivity would realize that you can't take away, you know, the Rebbe is the heir to the Chabad movement. And the previous Rebbe was the Rebbe of the Chabad movement. And for anybody to deny that or try to s- say that there is something um, 
person uh, personal here, that would be um, going against you know simple logic. And, is, the courts don't like dealing with religious issues. They feel very uncomfortable. Yeah, sometimes, but yeah. But sometimes they, this wasn't a religious choice. issue. What no, was this, this was religious? a question of ownership. Ownership. Yeah. This was ownership. Who is it belong to now? Also, um, this Barry had an axe to grind from way back. Obviously. He never, uh, he never accepted the Rebbe. So to him, uh, he 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 found uh, an opportunity now to cause trouble. Again, I'm not sure what motivated him. Yeah, I'm not sure know. whether it was just purely financial. Maybe he was just out for the money. I don't know. Uh, but the money he spent and the money it cost them, he would have probably uh, asked to give him what it cost. <laughs> they would probably give him some money and uh, and then he wouldn't have to go steal and to take all this stuff. Again, I'm not familiar no, exactly no, 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 just, what, just, what, what motivated what went on over there. You never know what motivated But I'm saying, people. a general principle we need to know. Of course, one has to go to a basin and one, but the very, as much important principle is it's the Torah wants that there should be justice. The Torah wants that people who commit crimes and people that take something that doesn't belong to them that we should as swiftly and as promptly give it back to the rightful owners. That is halacha. So, so it's not... Constitutional law comes then yeah. based on that principle. That's right. So we want, we want the Torah doesn't want people to uh, end up losing because they have to go to the court. The basin is not meant as a means of causing people hardship, but it's meant to justice. justice. And if justice cannot be served, like in cases that the basin can't handle, then it is a mitzvah to go ahead and try to get what belongs to you because that it really belongs. And in this case, we were, this wasn't a personal matter. We were trying to get back to the organization what is rightfully theirs. Yeah.